0: Hey, I just uh, am so honored to be speaking to you for the final time this summer season. Um, This is a a season where we head in the month of August into what we call summer lights, full bore. Uh, You're gonna be treated to some incredible uh, communicators who are gonna be sharing some very insightful and practical wisdom for us. Uh, and so I hope you'll come on back and invite other people to come and be part of the circle with you. You will not be disappointed. This, August is one of the most exciting times in our church's life because of these uh, wonderful speakers that come in. You're stuck with me today for one final installment in a series that we've been calling Difference Makers. And uh, it is a study in the letter to Titus that Paul wrote long ago to one of his protege. Uh, a study of the subject of Christian leadership, in a sense, or of Christian character, or of Christian influence. And I want to invite you to listen with me to uh, just five verses. We're spending this whole series really focusing on just five verses. And we've been amazed to see how much uh, insight and content is underneath the surface of just even a single verse of God's Word. So listen with me as I read from the letter of Paul Uh, To Titus, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. This is Paul's whole kind of introduction. It's a pretty intense, uh, deep introduction. And then he goes on and offers a greeting or a salutation. To Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And then we go on to verse five, last verse. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. um, I've done a little traveling this summer as I imagine others of you have and um, my most recent trip was a rather sudden one to go back to uh, my home state of Connecticut, to uh, visit with some of my family members going through some challenging times. And uh, one of the high points of the visit was uh, a luncheon about a week ago Wednesday uh, that involved um, conversation with the, the two gentlemen that you see up on the, on the screen there. The gentleman on the, uh, in the beige coat is my 88-year-old father. Looks pretty good for 88, doesn't he? I wish I was aging as beautifully as my dad uh, continues to. Uh, and the fellow with the deep tan and the blue jacket may be familiar to some of you, you might recognize him, but that is a gentleman by the name of John Boehner, who for uh, 13 terms served as a congressman from Ohio, and, uh, and ending in 2015, a more familiar picture perhaps, uh, as Speaker of the United States House of Representatives. Now, he had some interesting observations on our political times, as you could imagine. But, but one of the most memorable parts of the address that I heard him give a week ago Wednesday uh, was just hearing his sadness over how brutal life and conversation in America has become. Uh, Boehner shared a little bit about his, um, his growing up years. He grew up in a two-bedroom home, one of 12 kids, and they all were packed together in this home, um, and that was bef- before his grandparents also moved in. And, uh, and Boehner said, you know, when you're living in these kind of condensed circumstances, you just have got to learn how to get along, or you would kill each other. And he said, you have to figure out how to disagree without being disagreeable, he said. Uh, he said, you know, there was a time in my public life where I feel like we remembered how to do that, even around hot button issues. He said, we would, we would tussle it out on the floor of the House of Representatives. Uh, we, w- we might disagree on policy issues, but we could be friends. And, and a lot of us were great friends with people across the, the, the aisle. He says nowadays it, it's just not like that anymore. He said I've never seen anything like it. He said it's just it's gotten so intense. People, he said, he said I blame social media. I blame 24-hour ideological news uh, that just hypes us and hops us up all the time, uh, our constituents as well, uh, till, the, till till we can no longer interact in sort of a normal way as human beings like 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 we used to do, and and it is and it is keeping us from, from the compromises we used to be able to figure out, and for the civility that we used to be able to express towards each other. It's a very, very uh, difficult situation. In fact, he said, it's so bad, it's, it's even within parties now. I and mean, we're just tearing each other apart even within parties. So he said in 2015, I quit. I, I just couldn't take it anymore. I got out. I resigned. And I could hear the exhaustion and the sadness in in his voice as he said that. If you were here last Sunday, then you probably heard Charlie Browning, one of our pastors, striking a, a similar kind of note in his message. Charlie talked about how empirically verifiable it is now that there has genuinely been a shift in American public discourse and even private discourse uh, towards negativity, towards uh, vitriol and, and, and anger and, and hatred, and this negativity that's have afflicted so many parts of our, our nation's life has been documented now. In fact, America is the most negative nation in the world when it comes to public discourse, uh, and that can be empirically demonstrated. He reminded us that that this is exactly the situation for which we were created to be difference makers. And he called uh, to our memory the the verse with which we began this whole series a couple weeks ago, in which Jesus says that he wants his followers to be like salt, light, and yeast. And and the common element between all three of those, uh, those entities is that it doesn't take too much of, a, of that to, to improve an environment. And that we're meant to be like that. We're meant to be like salt, light, and yeast, that, that any environment we go into, we're bringing a positive difference. We're bringing faith, hope, love, uh, insight, wisdom. We're bringing the values of the kingdom of God into those uh, places. And I hope that as you go about your daily life, this is what you're thinking about. You're thinking about, how do I do that? As I enter this next situation, this next circle, how do I make a positive difference in in these places? Uh, So we've been thinking in the course of this series about how do we actually do that? I mean, what does it mean to be a difference maker? Are there any practical handles for this? Well, in part one, which I started a couple weeks back, we suggested that it begins with getting really clear on your identity as a difference maker. Our identity, our inner sense of orientation and of self is is the thing that's always being assaulted. We're always being told, you're this, you're that, or you're not this, or you're not that. And, And it's really important that we get very, very clear. And this is why the letter to Titus is so helpful because it begins with Paul expressing his sense of identity his clear sense of identity. And as I mentioned in the first message in the series, Paul could have introduced himself to his uh, friend Titus in lots of different terms. Uh, Paul was a Roman citizen. That meant he was the 1% in Roman society. Uh, He was the graduate of a very prestigious law school. He was an accomplished Pharisee, religious and political leader. He could have introduced himself in all those ways, but he chooses not to introduce himself that way and instead says... Uh, I, I am a servant of God, sent on a mission to sow seeds of truth that lead to godliness, which means that can help other people rise to the potential for which they're made, and and I am a steward of the hope of eternal life. I'm a servant sent to sow and to steward, and every circle he goes into, when he's in the in the uh, in the public forum of of Athens, or in the prison cell in Rome, or when he's conversing or writing a letter, he carries this unimpeachable sense of identity with him. This is what I'm here for, to be this, to be that person. Um, and I asked at the start of the series, you know, what's your sense of identity? Uh, how would you describe who I am at the core? What is that self, that, that, that sense of 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 purpose and mission that I carry with me into all the different circles, when I go to school, when I'm, when I'm interacting with people at the supermarket, when I'm uh, dealing with a difficult uh, argument in some social circle, who's, who, who am I? Uh, who am I that makes a difference uh, in that environment? And I wanna just reemphasize that how you think of your core identity is a difference maker in itself. And if you can get clear on that and stay true to that, um, you will exert a much different kind of influence than if you're just swiveling about, you know, being swept by the wind this way and that way or trying to gain other people's approval. So then Charlie goes on past that first verse, couple of verses where Paul's introducing himself to, to the actual greeting and the salutation and greeting part of the letter. And, uh, and he shows us how even in just that simple verse, verse 4, we get a picture of three of the great gifts, which if we can make these to each other and to the people around us, will make a really big difference in, in their lives. And, um, and I don't know if you were here for the message, but if you didn't hear that message, I hope you'll go back and listen to it online on our website. It, it, it will really be helpful to you. And ask yourself, am I doing these things? Am I bringing these particular gifts to my family members, to my circle of friends, uh, to, the, to the environments and, and organizations that I'm, I'm part of. Uh, as I was sitting and listening to um, Charlie's message, I thought to myself, man, I have been so incredibly impacted by these particular gifts. And you may remember the gifts are affection, affiliation, and, and affirmation. I think of the, of the power of affection in my life I think of the, uh, of the Pauls or the Paulas in my life who have just communicated to me in various ways, I see you, I like you, I, I appreciate these gifts about you, I value the contributions you're bringing, I see this potential in you, I am for you, Dan. In fact, there have been so many times in my life where, where I have felt discouraged, I felt beaten down, I felt like a failure, I felt like I don't know what to do next. Um, and it had, if it wasn't for the fact that I, that, that I could think of these people who had affection for me and who had done a good job of communicating that, and, and it was the awareness of those people who were for me in those ways that, that gave me the, you know, the courage to get up and keep going. You know, who have been those people in your life? Maybe you write a note today to the person. Uh, maybe me drop a, a, a text to somebody and say, thank you for the affection you've shown me. It has strengthened me in my daily uh, life. And then ask yourself, who is the person that you could give affection to, express more affection to this week, and how might that lift them uh, and, and enable them to, to, to do more than they could otherwise? I also thank God for the people in my life who... Um, who built in me a sense of affiliation larger than what I had been focused on. I think that had I not had people in my life who stretched my perspective, I could so easily have settled into being a really trivial person. I mean, I would have just gotten really consumed with my comforts, with my, uh, with my, my little resume, with, you know, with, just, uh, with, with just scrolling through you know, the stream, uh, with just catching the next thing uh, uh, on Netflix, or you know, I could have just become trivial that way. Uh, I have needed people in my life who who stretch the frame of of, of my perception um, in significant ways, uh, because without that stretching, that larger framework, life can get really miserably small. I was, uh, years ago I read a, a quotation by George Bernard Shaw who was an Irish playwright of some note and this is what Shaw said. This is the true joy in life, the being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, a mighty purpose. The being a force of nature, and this is the part I love, instead of a feverish, selfish little clot of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I mean, it's really easy to become that selfish little clod, right? Ah, you know, I mean, all the messaging in the society, especially the advertisers these days, just, you know, you should, you should be better off, you should be happier, you know, and there's so many other voices trying to tell you that, and, and that you're not, it's somebody else's fault we need a bigger frame. We need a higher calling than that. Uh, We need somebody that pushes us and people that push us past just our comforts and our, our conveniences. So who do you know that's done that for you? And who do you know that that you could help to affiliate themselves with a greater sense of purpose in life than their own status or their ego or their comforts? How can you help somebody else find the joy that comes from rising to their full place in the family, from rising to, their, to, their, to the place of influence they could have on the team, from, from rising to the, to, the, to the role they could play in the church or, or in our society? Or in the kingdom of God. I remember when I was a teenager, I was, you know, I was a, kind of a sullen kid. Uh, insecure kid. I remember a point in point time when I was just moping around. I think I may have told you this story once before, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself. We do that as we age. Uh, and um, so I'm just moping around, and my dad notices me, and he, he, and he says, You know, I want you to go out and do something. I said, I don't want to do anything. I'm just bored. I don't want to do it. And he basically says, I want you to go to Northern Westchester Hospital. I want you to walk in to the hospital. I just go up at the elevator and stop by a nurse's station and just ask this question Who hasn't gotten a visit recently? Who in the hall do you think maybe doesn't have anybody that's checking in on? I don't think you can do this anymore, by the way. But I did this. (laughs) I did this. I followed my father's instructions, and I found myself in conversation with this older man who had no family anywhere near around. And I heard the story of his life and the things that he had done in life and the virtues he'd lived by. And man, I walked out of that place different. (laughs) I walked out of that place with a bigger perspective on life. And I credit those kinds of experiences where I've been challenged to think bigger, to look broader. Uh, I I think those things have helped make me uh, more than that kind of person that's complaining that the world would not devote itself to making me happy. So who can you help affiliate? And how can you affiliate with something bigger than, than, than the world is compressing us all down into. And then how can you give the gift of affirmation uh, to the people in your circles? Um, it's been my experience that underneath the surface of most everybody's life, there are two anxious questions always simmering. Maybe not consciously, but they're there for us. The first is the, is, is the question, uh, in spite of all that is wrong about me, am I okay? Will I be okay? And the second one is, in spite of all that is messy and wrong about the world around, will life turn out okay? Will it it all somehow be okay? And, And the answer that difference makers bring on behalf of Jesus Christ to those two questions is a resounding yes. Yes, Jesus offers you grace in spite of your failings. We cannot say that often enough to one another and to the people around us. You're gonna mess up, you are a human being. You really should be called a human becoming. Um, and all of us, all of us are, are, are flawed, all of us fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says. But there is a grace greater than the gravity of our character. Uh, and, and, and that grace that is offered to us. Jesus says, just come to me with the things that are wrong in your life. Ask for forgiveness where you need to do that. My grace is sufficient for you. And I can help you start again. That's one of the most important gifts. The gift of grace. As Paul gives this, he says, grace and peace to, to Titus. And peace is the second big gift in this. Because because Jesus offers us peace in the face of all of life's great agonies. And let's be honest, it's agonizing at times. Did you follow what happened to that poor kid just walking along the street in Hinsdale last week? Did you follow the horror of that story? Do you you know stories of people who, who, who went through all the therapy for the disease? The agony of the therapy for the disease. And it didn't make a difference. That that disease couldn't get fixed in this life. And then there's, there's stories of relationships that break down and don't get fixed, and stories of other things that blow up in unexpected and awful ways with shrapnel going everywhere. And if it wasn't for the promise, the promise of Jesus that one day, behold, I will make all things new, There will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. If it weren't for that promise, how could we have peace? But because of that promise, we can. You can know that because of Jesus, life is ultimately going to turn out okay. So hang on to that. Believe in grace, hang on to that peace, share it as widely as you can, and it will make a difference for you and the people to whom you minister. It seems to me that if we forget who we are in God's sight, our identity, if we forget what he's called us to do in the world, our mission, our purpose, um, and if we forget or neglect to give people the three great gifts that we've been talking about here, it's going to be really easy for us and other people to give into a spirit of negativity, of grievance, of selfishness, of hopelessness. Um, and, and, and in that sense, I suppose, we could all become a little like John Boehner over time. We could get so discouraged and so weary that we just you know, up and quit. Do you know that some scholars think that, that this is the reason why Paul wrote this letter to Titus? Um, what they contend is that what we have here is not just um, a letter like the other letters Paul writes where he's trying to give instructions about things, although Paul does that in this letter too, but the motivation for the letter is, is to try and, and reach out to somebody who's having a very bad time at summer camp. Parents, have you ever gotten one of those letters? Uh, I think I wrote one of these to my parents once. I hate it here. I want out of here. I quit. There, there's very good reason to think that this, w- that this letter to Titus was a response to an earlier letter that Titus had written to Paul saying, get me off this God-forsaken rock. And get me away from these people. Harry Emerson Fosdick, a very brilliant preacher of an earlier era, says the whole letter really turns on this. One phrase that we meet in verse 5, right at the front of verse 5, and the words are, The reason I left you in Crete. Or as the King James Version has it, For this cause left I thee in Crete. Because Titus is wondering, why'd you leave me here? Why'd you leave me here? This is, this makes sense if you think about it, um, if you think about the context of, what, of where Titus is. Now, I think at first blush, the thought of, if I, like I said to you, hey, good news, I, I have some, I've got two tickets for you and a significant other to, to go off for a holiday in beautiful Crete. A lot of you would think, Awesome! If it was February, you'd think double awesome, right? You'd be thinking, oh, that sounds like a great experience. That is not the assignment Titus has. Uh, You need to understand more about this. Um, For one thing, as as Chuck Swindoll, a wonderful preacher uh, from Texas observes, islands are notoriously difficult places to cultivate spiritual maturity. Let me say that one more time. Islands are notoriously difficult places to cultivate spiritual maturity. And the job that Titus had, it was he was being sent to help cultivate the spiritual maturity of the Christian community on Crete. By the way, that is always the job of the church, of, the, of, the lead, of church leadership. It's not to put on programs. It's, it's not to, to you know, send out literature. It's not even to get up here and, and yammer It's to try and help cultivate the spiritual maturity of God's people, to help them grow up into their full potential as as Jesus people. And so Titus is going to do this, but an island's a tough place to do that for three reasons. Because islands are places that are transient, provincial, and hedonistic sometimes. Maybe not all islands, but think about the islands that we know about. We know about Fantasy Island. We know about Temptation Island. We know about Survivor Island and Alcatraz Island. But, but think about how transient, for example, islands so often are. People come, they stay a little while, and then they go home. Or even sometimes they think, oh, I'm going to make my life there. They get there, it's too limited, they leave. Well, spiritual maturity and the cultivation of it is very closely tied to long-term relationships. You need to be in long-term, transparent, trusting relationships uh, for enough time that you get discovered for who you really are. Marriage does this. You know, we just, and families in general, we learn each other's limitations and weaknesses and flaws and, and faults, and, and they catch up with us, and then we have to reckon with them, and, and hopefully we then grow through those things with the help of others. You know, one reason why I made a decision to stay for 27 years at Christ Church was I figured I got to stay long enough for all my bad qualities to catch up with me and then force change. And I'm really glad. Not all of them have caught up with me fully, but it feels to me like it's been so good to be in this long, continuous relationships, to have the kinds of friendships that I, that I enjoy, because I feel like that has helped me to grow. Maybe you have similar stories for yourself. Islands are not places where you get these long-term relationships, in many cases. Islands are, secondly, kind of provincial places uh, because they're cut off from the rest of of the world in in the first century. No TV, no internet. You know, Crete is a pretty isolated place. And so they they get these customs and these ways of doing things that are pretty set and and resistant to change. Well, spiritual growth is about change. It is. It's about examining the ideas that we have that aren't working in the way that God wants them to. And it's about replacing those ideas with God's vision, God's values. Um, you know, Paul says it once, I think, to the Romans that uh, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, by the changing of your whole perspective. And, and so spiritual growth involves being open to new ways of thinking about relationship, about conflict, about resources, about other people, that is really transforming. That's that's hard to do in a place that's very, very provincial. And islands can often be pretty hedonistic. Uh, Again, hashtag temptation island, survivor island, those kinds of places. and, and maybe that's not true for every island, of course, but you think how much island culture is about um, drinks, <laughs> umbrellas, beach chairs. It's about comfort, leisure. Well, nothing wrong with that. But spiritual transformation is about self denial and sacrifice and surrender too. About rest, yes, but also about these other things. So, how. How easily is Titus going to be able to sow a culture of, of spiritual transformation in an, in an island culture that's, that's about comfort and sensual pleasure and that kind of thing? So uh, I think it's safe to say that, that Crete was a likely very difficult place in which to cultivate spiritual maturity, first, because it was an island, and secondly, because Crete was full of (laughs) Cretans. You ever wonder where we get that term? And and a term that we often associate with people that are kind of bullheaded, stubborn, obnoxious, difficult, people, well, apparently, some of the original Cretans, the first century Cretans, were, were like that. Uh, they, they were difficult or dumb or stubborn or very, very obnoxious. In verse 10 of Titus 1, Paul actually affirms this in his response to Titus. He says, there are many rebellious people there full of meaningless talk and deception. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, this saying is true, says Paul. I've been there, he says. I I know what those people are like. So if you're finding this hard work, Titus, I totally get it, Paul is saying. I did not send you to an easy place. I did not send you to easy people. I understand why you might just want to quit. How well do you understand that? How many of you have been to Crete? I don't mean literally, though, if you've been there, and you've got a good Airbnb suggestion, let me know. I'm always open to that. But, But how many of you have figuratively speaking, been to Crete? You found yourself in a really rocky, difficult place in life. You found yourself in relationship or maybe out of relationship with really rugged, difficult people. You find yourself working so hard. You, you have labored at, the, at, at whatever that is. So long with so little fruit that you are very weary and you're very discouraged And and there's a big part of you that wants to do just like John Boehner and say, I resign, I quit. Get me off this rock. How many of you have ever been there? How many of you are there right this minute? If that is the case, you have a friend in Titus and you have a mentor in Paul. And that may be why you were brought here today or why you're tuning into this message. Um, Let me just say, and it's a longer sermon for another day, there are times to quit. There are times to quit. John John Boehner may have been at one of those appropriate times. Um, Jesus actually said, do you know that Jesus actually said you can quit? Jesus said there are times when you need to shake the dust off of your feet, off the sandals, and move on to someplace where the ground for fruitfulness is better where there's more hospitality to who you are and what you're bringing on my behalf. There are times to quit. Um, The preponderance of the instruction that we're given in both Old and New Testaments, though lifts up the value of perseverance, of perseverance in doing good hard work. Child raising is hard work and our kids can be cretins. (laughs) And we were too. (laughs) Marriage is really hard work. And our spouse and we ourselves can can be cretins. Um, Leading or serving people in the workplace or in community organizations, and even in church sometimes, can be rocky and wretched um, because of the imperfect people we are and we're surrounded by. And in this context, the counsel of James, the brother of Jesus, uh, in his famous letter can seem kind of crazy. You remember what he says in in James chapter 1? He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, Whenever you face trials of many kinds, for the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking in anything. You wonder why I have that memorized? because I have needed it in lots of spheres of life. I have needed to believe that even when I wasn't seeing fruitfulness outside, that maybe just hanging in there and continue to do the next best thing I know how um, would produce something in me, would make me more mature and, and more complete. And so that's one of the biggest reasons to make perseverance something we're, 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 we're seeking for ourselves and trying to instruct our kids in and our grandkids in is, is because of just the good thing it does in us. It makes us more spiritually mature. But there's another verse in the Bible, this one from St. Paul in his letter to the Galatians we read on, in our last series. Um, and, and Paul says there, let us not become weary in doing good For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. If we do not give up. And so one reason we persevere is because it helps our character grow. And the second reason we persevere is because the growth that we're seeking to see elsewhere and in other people, it doesn't operate on microwave time. It operates in agricultural ways. And and it takes time, and some of the growth is happening. We just can't see it below the soil or beneath the the snow. And one day at the right time, boom, we'll see it. One of my favorite stories that Charlie told last week was when he got called in by his two bosses at his first job out of college. If you weren't here, he was working for a tech company in Austin, Texas. Uh, he was responsible for trying to make deals uh, and, and, and build client relationships, and he had worked for a full year and zilch, he had not closed a single deal. He get called in by the two bosses. They wanna sit down with him. He is petrified. He thinks, he assumes he's being called in to be laid off, and instead they say, we like your stuff, kid, we like who you are and the way you're doing it and we just want to say keep it up. Persevere. Keep it up. And Charlie walks out of there, actually floats out of there on a cushion of, of affection and affirmation. What he didn't tell you was part two. He, he was fortified by the care they showed him, he went back out of the job and he just went after it again and again to his best of his ability. And months later, he closes two of the biggest corporate contracts in the company's history. Or God does. At the proper time. Someday we'll go back and look at more of this letter to Titus. Um, and we'll unpack all the other fabulous wisdom there is in this text, and there's a lot of it, but as we come to a close today, I just want to leave you with two seeds of truth that I hope you'll take with you. We find them in verse five, where Paul finishes his explanation of why he has left Titus on this rugged rock and among these very ragged, wretched people, and Paul goes on like this. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. In other words, first of all, Titus, set some things in better order. Move them towards completion. The work was unfinished when you got there, Titus. I'm reading between the lines here, but safe to say, Paul knew. And it's going to be unfinished when you leave. That's the nature of these things. Don't be overwhelmed by all of it. Just set in order a few things. Just address a few gaps. Set some things right. And maybe you actually need to hear that on your crete. Don't think you're gonna fix everything. Just pick one or two things to sort out, to focus on, to do your best with. And do that today, and then tomorrow get up and make another really short list and, and be faithful in going after that and see what happens, what God does with that over time. And maybe the thing that needs to be set right is inside of yourself and not just out there in other people. And then secondly, Paul says, appoint elders in every town. Actually, the word at the core that gets translated as appoint often gets translated as ordain. And to ordain is to name somebody, call up their gifts, and pray for those gifts to be used so that that elder can continue the work when you're not there. Name the gifts, call them up, pray for God's power to move through that person, to extend the impact, the difference, where you're not. So this is a reminder too. Sometimes the most difference we can make is not to do all the work ourselves, but to name the gifts in others, to invite them to make those gifts more actively involved in some important thing, and to pray for them, and to let them know, I'm praying for you, for God's power to do in you and through you wonderful things. Who might you appoint or ordain in your circle to name, to call up, to pray? for in the days to come? Who are those individuals in whom you are investing? This is where our series uh, ends. Uh, This is where it it moves on to the next channel, so to speak. I guess I should say that were we to read all of the way to the end of the book of Titus or letter of Titus, um, we'd still be left in some suspense. We would hear Paul talking more about the difficult people Titus is dealing with. He would talk more about the rigorous work of cultivating that rocky ground. He would talk about the nature and the character of the kind of leaders that he wanted Titus to find and to lift up and to develop. But the letter would end without the answer to the big question, and that is, was the letter and the mentoring efforts of Paul a difference maker? Did it make a difference? Did Titus recover his sense of identity and rededicate himself to being a a servant sent to sow and to steward in a fresh way? Did Did it inspire Titus to to do as Paul had done with him and express greater affection and, and build a sense of affiliation and, and express affirmation to other people so it would lift them up. Did it have that effect? Was he successful in setting some things in order and, 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 and addressing what had been left unfinished? Did he, did he appoint an elder in even a single town? The New Testament doesn't tell us. We hear no more of Titus or of Crete, and for all we know, based on the evidence in the New Testament, the guy quit, <laughs> and we'd understand why. Back in 1978, an atheist Cretan named Dan Meyer. Um, had just been led to Jesus by a group of very loving Christian people, and and a change had started in in his orientation. Uh, Something had started to grow. And and in that very same year, some archeologists uh, were were, were digging on the island of Crete when they came across many feet down the the rocky remains of what clearly had been a big edifice and the more they dug um, the more amazed they were by what they were uncovering because it was clear now that this had been a a really unusually large worship center it had five aisles to it. It had been a temple that had obviously at one point accommodated what must have been a really thriving religious community on, on the land uh, uh, of Crete and, and, and it had been uh, apparently destroyed in a major, major uh, uh, earthquake in the year, I think, 697 or something. Um, actually, 670. And then they, they started to really study further what they'd found. And they found on one of the pediments that there was an inscription carved into it that gave them a clue to, uh, to what this particular structure had been. And, and the inscription was actually a dedication. It was a tribute to someone whom that huge group of worshipers simply called St. Titus of Crete. I don't think he quit. I think he persevered. I think he was salt and light and yeast. I think God made him a difference maker. And so I, I just want to ask you and I want to ask myself, Could we do likewise? Could we be difference makers in our time? And the recipe for how to do it's right here in these five verses. With whom and how practically can you and I start from here to build a legacy? Please pray with me. God, thank you for the witness of your word and of those servants that have gone before us, and for those servants who have invested in us, and for the privilege now that it is to be called up, to be named, to be gifted to be difference makers ourselves. What a joy to be used for a mighty purpose. So use us, we pray. Not just us individually, but us together. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.